Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Tech Policy Grind. You know the drill. This is the Internet Law and Policy Foundry's mostly brand new podcast. Each week, we hammer out the latest in tech law and policy with movers, shakers, and generally awesome, interesting folks, all of them fellows or friends of the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. I'm Emery Rohn, an attorney with Privacy Rights Clearinghouse in San Diego, joined as always by Pinal Shah, GovTech aficionado in the Bay Area, and joining us from the East Coast from what I can only appreciate as an impossibly cold, miserable bomb cyclone snowpocalypse, we have Rachel Wolbers calling in from the D.C. metro area where she is the policy director at Engine, an advocacy and research foundation and a 2017 fellow with the Internet Law and Policy Foundry. Rachel, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. If, in case this is your first time uh, tuning in to Tech Policy Grind, before we get into the bios, we generally like to ask what is my favorite question. Rachel, what are you grinding for? Well, of course, um, working for Engine, I'm always grinding for startups. Um, that is our, our main focus and our mission. Uh, but today I left my house to... Uh, you left the house? I did. I'm sorry. So Are you even allowed to? I'm not sure when this is coming out. I, I checked the weather today. It is 18 degrees Fahrenheit in D.C. right now, and you left the house? Well, you know, I'm from Michigan, so I actually okay. spent <laughs> all last week in below zero weather. So 18 <sighs> degrees seems like nice this and is, warm. This is an upgrade for you. Yes, it is. Um, and, you know, there are certain things that I love to leave the house for. One was uh, a two-hour-long litigation strategy meeting on net neutrality um, mm -hmm. with a number of public interest groups and uh companies and folks who are looking at how we're going to sue the FCC, uh, which <laughs> is a little bit above my pay grade, but it was very interesting learning a lot. Um, and then I also had a, a two hour lunch with my uncle who does patent uh, reform issues as do I. And so we had two long hours of talking about patent issues. Uh, so, you know, I came back home after after my two great loves, net neutrality and patents, were taken care of. <laughs> so I think that it's a good time to start off with some maybe background biographical stuff. If you've ever listened to the show before, we like to talk about really split the show into two segments where we talk about our guests' foundations and the journey that they had to get where they are today. And then we talk about the super interesting work that they're doing today. So to go for the background, you know, whenever I'm preparing for this show – it is always a lesson in humility and awe as I pour over our guests' LinkedIn accounts, uh, profiles, and resumes. Um, now, your law school experience, I think, was um, a little busier than mine. Do you want to talk a little bit about your law school experience? And do you have any advice for aspiring students maybe starting their 1L year this January or perhaps wrapping it up? Yeah. So um, I... I uh, went to GW for my undergrad and was in DC um, and graduated uh, and worked on the Hill as an intern for years uh, at GW and was a Republican. I am still a Republican, uh, despite, you know, sometimes not always aligning with the Republicans as much these days. Um, uh, but 2008, December 2008, uh, was pretty bad time to be a Republican. I'm sure Pinal can uh, attest to what it's like when your entire party uh, is voted out, and so <laughs> there aren't that many jobs. And so I decided to go to law school um, and thought that maybe I would want to move back to the Midwest, and so I went to Cleveland. Um and really had wanted to do international law, human rights law, um, and then spent a little bit of time 
well, that 1L summer in The Hague and working for the special court for Sierra Leone and quickly realized I hated uh, war criminals and, and war crimes prosecution, that somebody should do that job, but I was not cut out for it. Um, so when I War criminals are bad, I'm just shocked. <laughs> yeah, I know, right? Um, so when I did the law review write-on competition that summer, I got on the Journal of Law, Technology, and the Internet um, and started working uh, on law and technology policy issues and and thought that it was a really interesting topic in that uh, the Internet is such a great platform for democratization and connecting people and doing all of these uh, really new and novel legal uh accomplishments. And so really found a good home in the technology law space with through that um, that journal experience. And when I left law school, I knew I wanted to go back to Capitol Hill and found luckily found a job with a member of Congress, Congressman Farenthold, who was on the Judiciary Committee. And we did lots and lots of technology issues. So I was able to be kind of at the epicenter of tech policy, whether you're looking at intellectual property, immigration, things like ECPA, surveillance, 702, all of those fun issues go through the Judiciary Committee. Um, and so that only made me want to be a tech policy nerd even more. I am always curious when people get into tech policy space, um, especially after they don't necessarily have, or especially when they don't necessarily have a technology or a sciences background um, yeah. in their undergrad or, you know, academic or professional experience. What was it like getting into the tech space and were there challenges that you faced that you think might have been alleviated had you had a science background or? It definitely helps to have a science background, um, particularly when you're looking at like the patent law space. Um, you can't even take the patent bar unless you have a hard sciences background, um, which was another reason why I was like, oh, I'm not going to practice patent law. I might as well just go rewrite our patent laws. Um, but it is, it's definitely helpful. Uh, there are a lot of like in the net neutrality debate, there are so many different aspects of how the internet actually works that we're going to be litigating over that um, it would be helpful, but it doesn't mean that you can't learn it. Um, and a lot of things in tech policy, you kind of just make it up as you go along because technology is changing all the time. So it's easy to, um, as long as you can evolve with the technology, I think you don't necessarily need a hard sciences background. Yeah, I agree, Rachel. I actually have a similar kind of background to you, whereas I started off going to law school wanting to do international uh, human trafficking, you know, that whole mm -hmm. space, and then realized it was really niche and, you know, it's so intense and you have to, have, I think, have a very particular personality to like, yeah. again, prosecute war criminals and deal mm -hmm. with them on a daily basis. And so um, I just actually ended up finding myself uh, in the past administration working on science and technology policy and R&D policy and kind of fell in love with it, um, not having had a hard sciences background. But um, I think having a deeper technical understanding is definitely helpful. And I think you can you can do that research on your own. You can it's a steep learning curve, but I think you definitely can learn it on your own. And like you said, it helps to have that hard science background, but it's not impossible without it. 
So I guess after CW, like so many others interested in the policy world, you moved to D.C. Do you want to talk about that move as someone that is uh, personally very interested in D.C. policy world, but I've been trying desperately to avoid making the move back east? Is D.C. the place to be if you want to be in policy? Is there really any other alternative right now? So I think, um, you know, D.C. is the epicenter where most of it is happening. But one of the things that I focus on a lot at Engine is this idea of startups everywhere, that there are startups and tech companies and tech policy impacting every single city across the United States. We feature uh, a different ecosystem every week. Um, I think this week we're uh, featuring my hometown of Grand Rapids, Michigan, uh, but you know there's a great startup scene in Fargo, North Dakota, in Scottsdale, Arizona. Um, and so I encourage anybody who is working in the tech industry to get involved with policy and to at least have a meeting with your lawmaker, uh, chat with your local senators and your local um, representatives, because it is uh, what we're doing on a national level um, is implicated in, you know, every single computer uh, in the country. But it also has uh, different, there are different ways of approaching it in different cities and there are different um, things that are important. And so it's always really helpful when we can make sure that it's not just coming from DC or not just from Silicon Valley, really, that you're getting uh, everybody who's involved in tech to get engaged in tech policy. I have to say too, um, I, I did live in DC for several years and then making the move back um, home to the Bay Area last year, I, I, when I was kind of in my job search mode, a lot of the companies and law firms I was interested in working for, they didn't really see my government experience as translatable, which, you know, I found really odd considering so much of what the tech world does is ultimately regulated by federal law and policy. Um, but I, I am seeing a shift, I think, in the last few years. I think more and more companies and entities are realizing working with, or at least having someone on the team who understands government is really invaluable. And also, I think from the government side. They're trying to do a better job of acknowledging that they're better off working with with and at the speed of industry, you know, where possible. Yeah, I think that um, we are seeing a lot of different smaller companies realizing like, oh, hey, this tax bill might have big implications for me. And there's no way that your average startup or your average citizen is going to read all 1,700 pages of the tax bill. Um, and so an organization like mine helps do that for you and kind of highlights what are the, the most concerning issues. But uh, I always tell people, um, you know, you should hire a uh, somebody who kind of understands what's going on in the government or at least is following it. Because if you don't, you'll get steamrolled. Right. So I want to talk a little bit about what you said earlier, which was to talk to our representatives. I guess in 2018, I think that especially in light of the, for example, net neutrality FCC comment period and the closing of the White House petition website, the idea that people can just talk to their representatives is maybe a little alien or maybe people are discouraged or um, feeling disenfranchised. Now, I know before arriving at Engine, you were a director at Twin Logic Studies, which is, and I'm reading from their website, one of Washington's top boutique government relations firms offering, among other things, lobbying. 
So for those people that are feeling disenfranchised, you know, the public perception of lobbying is frequently that it is, you know, backroom deals in cigar smoke filled clubhouses or even worse, just sort of glorified bribery. But I'm interested in when you say talk to your representatives, what are you imagining? What is what form does that take? What is it? What, what is that field like? What is the lobbying like? And sort of what does it mean to be a director of a government relations firm? Yeah. So, I mean, I, I think like all stereotypes have their uh, roots in some truth, but I definitely, uh, well, I mean, you can't smoke inside DC, so we don't have a lot of cigar uh, filled back rooms, but I think that um, there are some I, really great cigar bars though. <laughs> I don't. Of I'm, course, there are. Uh. <laughs> um, I always uh, think of lobbying as more of an education, both on uh, as as a government relations firm. You're educating your clients on what's happening in DC and what's moving and how it can impact them, and then you're doing a lot of educating of staffers, um, particularly when you're talking about tech issues. There's a lot of wonky, in the weeds, very specific um, issues that, that staffers are not always looking at. Uh, for instance, I worked a lot on the IANA transition and the ICANN, the uh, International Corporation of Assigned Names and Numbering. So like, what does .gov mean? Um, and staffers, you wouldn't expect your average person to know. We don't expect our members of Congress to really know, but we want to make sure that um, we can raise those concerns with them about the transition and or whatever. Um, but educating staff, educating our clients, and trying to come up with solutions to make sure that uh, bad legislation doesn't pass or that if you do have a proposed solution, trying to usher that through Congress. Um, one of the reasons why I went to Engine other than I love startups, um, is that I think the traditional uh, shoe leather lobbying is is not always as relevant as it used to be, where people are now able in a much easier way to contact their members of Congress. Even, I guarantee you, every single tweet your member of Congress, every time you tweet at your member of Congress, there is somebody in his office or her office who is looking at that, who sees it. If not, the congressmen themselves, because most of them do narcissistically follow their own Twitter feed very closely. Um, but, um, you know, that I've looked at a lot of studies and thought a lot about um, what is impactful and really a face-to-face -face meeting with your member of Congress um, is the most impactful way. And I can tell you right now, it's very... Uh, as somebody who's worked for a member of Congress, you're going to get a response back. Um, if you are a business owner or, uh, you know, have a real concern or if you want to organize an event for them, they're, most members of Congress are very eager to talk to their constituents. Um, are they eager to talk to people who aren't their constituents? Not particularly, but, um, you know, they're there to get reelected. And so I think really the best way to engage is to make sure that you're having a meaningful conversation. And I think most people would think it's really weird to reach out to your member, but they get requests like that every day. How easy is it for an individual without a lobbying firm to get a face-to-face -face with their representative? And what, um, what would that look like? I mean, do they just say, hey, let's have coffee and oh. um, so I think <laughs> you can always go to their town halls, but I think uh, generally 
uh, the best way is to reach out on and have have a real issue. You can't just say like, I hate you because you're repealing net neutrality. Um, <laughs> that's probably not going to get you very far. I'm sorry. Uh, although I do encourage people to do that. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> to meet with you, um, having like a real, I've done my research. This is how it's impacting me. If you, uh, if you want to talk to me, I'm always happy to put you in touch with your member or their staffers. We have like wonderful software that shows us who all the staffers are and what issues they cover. Um, and you know, it's, it is helpful to work through a group like engine. Um, it's more helpful if you have a ton of money to hire a lobbyist, but it is, uh, it's still a meaningful connection to do that, that outreach to your member. Now that it is so much easier for individuals to contact their representatives, does the weight of that individual voice decrease? Is is that voice lessened by the fact that we now have an easy way, for example, if you go to fight for the future to get mm -hmm. a hundred thousand signatures on a you know, a letter to your congressman? I mean, where is that balancing between enabling massive amounts of political action and actually getting practical, impactful one-on-ones yeah i think uh you know we we organized on net neutrality we organized a uh letter we had 1300 startups sign on and from all 50 states which i was really excited about um and then we also encourage people to share their story with us and so while we sent um the whole letter to all of the hill offices we actually went through and we received 87 stories and we made sure that that person's story was forwarded to their member of Congress and, and their two senators and said, if you would like to have a more in-depth discussion, uh, feel free to contact us. Um, and we actually, we had uh, four or five uh, members take us, uh, staffers take us up on it. Um, we've had organized some great constituent level meetings on net neutrality with Republicans in Arizona and Florida. Um, and so I think they, they do, members do want to hear like well thought out feedback um, and want to know how particular pieces of legislation will impact their constituents. While a petition like Fight for the Future, and we work closely with Fight for the Future, I think they're doing wonderful work. There's a balancing between mass and substance, and I think you need both, um, but you have to make sure uh, that that substance also gets through because the, the volume is, like you said, it's a little bit deep. It's, I think my pitch to everybody is quality over quantity, um, but quantity is also important so that you can find that quality within there. So I guess we've been talking about engine back and forth. Um, we've been talking about uh, twin strategies, but specifically engine. Do you want to give us a little bit of background about what engine is? Um, you're the policy director. Um, what is the organization? What's the mission statement? What do you do and how do you like it? Yeah, so um, I had been working. I actually met that engine team uh, about five years ago uh, at I went had gone to South by Southwest with as a staffer. Uh, with my former boss and met uh, Julie Samuels, who used to be our executive director. She's now our president. Um, and we shared a common love of patent reform. And uh, she had been the EFF 
uh, Mark Cuban chair to eliminate stupid patents. And so mm-hmm. um, she's great patent litigator. And so we had worked together over the years um, and Engine has always been uh, very involved in Congress, but they've never had a DC presence. They've always been outside of DC, mostly in San Francisco and then more recently in New York. Um, we have two people now here in DC. Um, so there are six of us. Startups in particular have always been a passion of mine. My mom is a serial entrepreneur. She has three startups that she is running right now. Uh, they're all uh, like she runs Roblo's skincare line. She's got a lot of she's <laughs> selling CBD oil recently, which apparently is a huge deal in California. Um, hmm. But anyway, she's a serial entrepreneur. So I've always loved the like startup ecosystem and entrepreneurial spirit. I've watched her start a ton of companies at our kitchen table. And so um, as a daughter of that, I was very excited to join Engine and care a lot about their mission. So, which brings me to what our mission is. Engine was started about five years ago out of the SOPA PIPA debate, um, which I'm sure you all remember was a bill that would have essentially criminalized uh, anybody who posted copyrighted content. Um, This bill was stopped after an uproar at CES. People started realizing it was kind of the the groundswell of tech realizing they needed to get involved in DC and that their voices mattered, that when they did stand up, um, you remember the internet blackouts uh, during the SOPA PIPA debate, um, Wikipedia shutting down, People got really um, involved and really riled up and members of Congress got very scared and pulled the bill. Um, And so Engine realizing that uh, there wasn't really a central force to um, harness this, uh, all of these voices created as a nonprofit to help engage startups with Congress um, and with lawmakers. So we kind of have four main buckets of areas that we look at um, to help improve the startup ecosystem. It's access to capital. So things like tax and trade, capital access, financial services, access to connection, which is net neutrality, telecom, more recently, cybersecurity, access to talent, which is immigration, diversity, STEM education, and then kind of a catch-all bucket, which is access to favorable regulatory environments, which is where things like intellectual property, um, 702 surveillance, and CDA 230 come in. And so we engage very broadly on those, uh, on any issues that is impacted there. And I'm lucky because Honestly, the issue that I deal with, I get to deal with almost a new issue every single day. Um, there's always, there's never a shortage of issues to work on. Um, and then this year, we've really started um, branding as and reaching out to building the startup ecosystems throughout the country. So when I was talking about our Startups Everywhere program, um, knowing that, you know, with the Republicans in control of both uh, the White House and Congress, that uh, tech needs to make sure that they can show that constituents and Americans and every single congressional district are impacted by uh, the growth of the tech sector. It's not just Silicon Valley um, and that there is a broader uh, 
tech ecosystem and startup ecosystem outside of Silicon Valley, um, which is really important to humanizing tech, which sometimes needs a little bit of humanization these days. Hearing you talk um, as a self-identified Republican about diversity and immigration, um, it makes me really happy because those aren't necessarily things that nowadays people rightly or wrongly associate with sort of Republican ideology. So um, I just, yeah, I think that's awesome that um, it's definitely, I think, a bipartisan issue because it 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 strengthens our economy and it you know it makes um, technology it makes. You know, it just increases access for all Americans. So that makes me really happy to hear you say that. Um, and I was going to ask you actually what got you interested in advocacy for startups, but it sounds like, you know, you got your inspiration from your mother, which is awesome because I love hearing about women starting their own businesses. Um, and you sort of touched on that there are a lot of issues facing startups today. And I wanted to know, could you talk a little bit about what are sort of those major challenges that startups face today? Yeah, I mean... Uh, immigration is a, is a great, is a big one. Um, it is, you know, every single study and it's sad to me that people think the Republicans aren't for immigration reform because I've always been about, um, and being from Michigan and seeing, I have family who are farmers who are always employing immigrants and know a lot of immigrants and always want to bring more immigrants to this country. And if you're looking at startups um, who have really specific niche areas where sometimes there is only one person in the world too. Um, my favorite story is uh, the guy who worked for Snapchat who invented how to put like the dog ears and when you open your mouth. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, because it was like a revolutionary technology that we all need. <laughs> yeah, it is a revolutionary technology. <laughs> One guy in the world who know how to, who knew how to do it, and he lived in Ireland. And Snapchat tried for a long time to get him a visa to come here. And you know they're like, we got to move on this technology fast. And so they weren't able to get him a visa, and they ended up hiring ten people in Ireland to support him. And wow. so I tell this story wow. all the time, being like, we could have hired ten engineers in the United States to support the dog filter, you know, tongue. Yeah. Well, that brings up, I guess, a really great addendum to this question, because I don't want to <laughs> um, let this question, uh, le- I don't want to miss this opportunity to ask this question, even though it might be a little incendiary. But I guess, what about under the current administration, as far as the barriers to tech startups? Are these barriers being lifted under the Trump administration? Or are they becoming more entrenched? Yeah, I think um, there, it definitely has been uh like there have been a lot of hot button issues um, that have been problems under the Trump administration. Immigration is a really big one. Um, Net neutrality is another huge one. There are uh, certain areas. And I imagine the uh, recreational marijuana, judging by your mother's CBD business, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. You know, uh, we generally sign her on to our net neutrality letters too. Um, But the, There are a few silver linings. Um, I think the there've been a number of good modernization of government technology bills that have passed more recently. Um, the trade, the NAFTA renegotiation, could be a little bit problematic. But in my talks with the administration, um, it's going in the right direction, and there are some. I mean, NAFTA was 
written long before and in the early 90s. So before we had the internet as we know it today. And it would be great to get Canada and Mexico's internet laws as great as ours. And so there's an opportunity there with trade law um, to potentially make that better. Um, but generally, it has been a, a frustrating year from the tech perspective. Um, and I don't think that that's necessarily policy, but like the rhetoric that we hear coming from Republicans has been um, pretty negative as of late. So I also wanted to ask you, since we're talking about barriers and challenges in startups, you know, because I work in GovTech and because you intimately understand startups and what drives a lot of their business decisions, what do you think are the prevailing thoughts right now for startups if they're thinking about working with the government or if they're not thinking about working with the government? What are the barriers to that? Because I know that government is really trying to tap into startup innovation, but it's sort of hard to sell, the, you know, hey, come work with the government because, you know, it's going to take six months to a year to two years to get anything off the ground. But, you know, government's trying to change that. So I want to know from the startup's perspective, what is their thinking? And Yeah, I think, um, you know, I actually uh, have been talking a lot to, there's a, a startup incubator here in D.C. that focuses on selling to the government. Um, and it is really hard because startups are not thinking in, I mean, you're like government acquisition cycles can take three or four years before you're actually approved um, to actually sell anything to the government. So, and most startups, you know, we like to say they scale fast and fail fast. And mm -hmm. so um, the life cycle of a startup, it doesn't particularly bode well for um, working with the government. Um, and then uh, the, the scalability of actual government funding is really hard. Um, mm -hmm. You're not going to be, if you're a small business or a new business or a women minority owned business, there are lots of preferences for you when you're working with the government, right. but right. That, it's capped at a certain level. So you can't really, when I, when I try to explain to people what the difference between a small business and a startup is, it's mm -hmm. that a startup has an exponential scalability growth rate. And if you're looking at scaling to the, selling to the government, there's kind of a ceiling there uh, if you're a small business. And so it's not, and I wouldn't say it's this administration, I think it's just generally Absolutely. how the government and startups function. Right. 2017 was a obviously a tumultuous year for just about every area of tech policy, um, but I am interested in hearing the engine perspective. Obviously, you said you worked on net neutrality and tax reform and immigration, um, cybersecurity. Obviously, all these were huge issues. But uh, what policy areas received the most focus from Inchin in 2017? So um, I think the issue that I did not anticipate uh, spending months and months of my life on when I started with Engine was Section 230. Um, and that debate is still continuing with the Stop Enabling Sex Trafficking Act or the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act. SESTA is the one in the Senate, BOSS is in the House. Um, Essentially, these bills would, uh, right now, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act says that uh, platforms uh, are not liable for the speech created by their users. Uh, user and content. by the way, we have a great CDA 230 uh, yeah. explainer listeners on episode one with uh, some other excellent Foundry found fellow Foundry founders, in fact. Yeah. 
Which nice is why plug, Emery. Too far into Thank the you. week because <laughs> that is a great episode, and I love Allie and Tim, and we work really closely on this issue in DC. Um, but I would be remiss to not uh, bring it up because it does take up a good amount of my time. Um, theoretically, Sesta um, is going to the floor in the Senate uh, in the next few weeks. Sesta would be a huge. I think, you know, startups would really, really have to rethink their business models if SESTA passes. And and hopefully the House version of FOSTA, which uh, Engine has worked very closely with the House Judiciary Committee. Evan, my boss, uh, testified on this topic at the House Judiciary Committee. Um, the fight online sex trafficking act is much better in its most current form. It directly goes after the bad acts of sex trafficking, and it amends Section 230 in a way that is already essentially law. It's um, Ninth Circuit. The Ninth Circuit case uh, essentially codifies law that we already all live under, which is great. And it's something that you can actually tell a startup, hey, these are this is what you need to know when starting your company in relation to if you're having user-generated content posted on your site. Um, so we would love to see the house version uh, pass. Um, and we're hopeful that um, you know we can continue to build support for that house version. Um, definitely not an issue I thought I was going to work on, uh, <laughs> sex trafficking. <laughs> um, but it's a really, it is one of those like very scary foundational principles of the internet that if you um, do not take very close care in amending it, that you could end up with, you know, honestly, venture capital firms not wanting to invest in startups that are going to have an aspect of user-generated content. Um, mm. And that would be bad for consumers and startups and all of us. Creators who, and entrepreneurs. Yeah, speaking and of barriers. Yeah. <laughs> Your YouTube time would suffer. It would be miserable. Dating apps. There's be yeah. no dating apps if Sesta passes. So <laughs> I hope you all. Well, Emery's married. Pinal. You know. I hope you got a, a man <laughs> locked up because Sesta passes. <laughs> take away your dating apps. So I keep telling staffers. That's no a more Tinder. Oh no. All no right, so I guess let's put on uh, – before we wrap up our policy discussion, this has been excellent, by the way. I really want to thank you again for joining us. But before we wrap this up, let's put on our prognosticator hats, on our, our fortune teller hats. And I'm interested in your perspective, especially uh, from Engine. What do you foresee as being the biggest issues as we head into 2018? And then if you really want to go crazy, let's think 2019 and 2020. Yeah, I think um, you know one issue that uh, is still, and you know, I've been working on this issue for a long time. Um, that is still a, an issue is encryption and and the debate over uh, government backdoors and how now we're calling it responsible encryption, which is just you know creating a backdoor, and so. That's and an if issue. you'd like to listen to an excellent episode about responsible encryption and cybersecurity and the encryption debate, make sure to check out the last episode of Tech Policy Grind with Camille Stewart. Wonderful. <laughs> um, so I think encryption is going to continue. Cybersecurity is obviously going to be uh, 
an issue going forward. I think we're going to start seeing a lot more around artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, any of these big topics that are really hard for folks who you know, are, are new to the issue, might not understand, there's a lot of ways to game the system. And so uh, we, we're we focusing on 2018. We have a whole encryption series coming up in June and July. Um, intermediate liability will continue to be an issue. Um, and I suspect that we're, and obviously net neutrality, and I suspect uh, we're due for a, a patent fight in the next few years as well. So those will all keep me quite busy um, as we look at 2018, 2019, and 2020. Sounds like it. Um, by the way, I have been racking my brain trying to think about who you sound like. And it just occurred to me, like, has anyone ever told you that you sound like Jennifer Lawrence? Yes, I get that all the time. You get that all the time. I was like, oh, my God, who does she sound like? Jennifer Lawrence. I don't know. I've, like, <laughs> I didn't realize Jennifer Lawrence had a Midwestern accent. I think she's from the Midwest, if I'm not mistaken, or somewhere around there. But um, I don't know. Yes, I do get that occasionally. <laughs> okay, good. It's not just me. So um, we generally like to ask our guests about what they're reading, anything from wonky tech policy to romance novels, you know, whatever floats your boat. Um, what are you reading right now, Rachel? Yes. So I, um, I just, I did just read into the water, which is my like fiction rotation written by the woman from girl who wrote girl on a train, which is good. Um, but I just moved on to, uh, the great courses series on military blunders, which oh, has wow. been really interesting of like, why especially like right also, now, <laughs> it's very it's topical, very, you know, like <laughs> talks about, lack of leadership, people changing the plan at the last minute. Um, wow. It's interesting. Military blunders. I'm actually reading thing. something similar. I just I, picked up The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic by Mike Duncan. And listeners, if you're not familiar with Mike Duncan, you might want to check him out. He is the host of, I think what it can probably be called the legendary podcast, The History of Rome. Um, and the book is great. It uh, focuses on the Roman Republic from 146 BC to 78 ACE. Uh, so it's chronicling the beginning of the decline of the Roman Republic. And I'm sure uh, sort yeah. of similar to your, Rachel, uh, it, it is a little bit of a foreboding read in 2018. Um, but yeah, I'm really enjoying it. I hope I you're checking out. out. I used, yeah, I used to live in Rome. So I'm, I'm always uh, interested in that's a, that's a very specific historical time period, too. It's uh Fascinating. Um, so I'm reading We Gonna Be All Right, Notes on mm -hmm. Race and Resegregation by Jeff Chang, um, you know, because times are hard right now. Um, I'm also looking for recommendations for any period pieces or any other, you know, historical fiction or nonfiction books that are set in Japan to prepare for my upcoming trip in spring. Whenever I travel somewhere, I like to set the mood and kind of like get in the mindset. So if anyone has any recommendations, hit us up. And before we head out, we've got some upcoming events we definitely want to shout out to on January 29th of this month and this year, sorry, the Internet Education Foundation. That's the Internet Law and Policy Foundry's parent organization. The IEF will be hosting the 2018 State of the Net Conference. Now, the State of the Net is the largest tech poli or internet policy conference in the U.S. and the only one with over 50 percent congressional staff and government policymakers in attendance. And what's more, Tech Policy Grind will be making an appearance. 
So Joe and I will be interviewing speakers as they come off the stage, and we'll be bundling those interviews up uh, with a few special bonus episodes of TPG. So uh, if you're interested, I definitely – I think that there are still some tickets to State of the Net. If you're in D.C., I highly recommend you check it out if you can. You can find out more information about State of the Net at stateofthenet.org. And keep your eyes peeled on the TPG Twitter feed for more information about streaming interviews. We might have someone Facebook Live and when you can get an insider's look at the most in-the-trenches internet policy conference in the country. And so before we head out, uh, you know, another upcoming event, I think, depending on when you're listening to this, I believe this upcoming week as you record, uh, CES is going down and we would be remiss not to let Rachel talk a little bit about some of her CES experiences yeah, so I actually went to CES. This will be my fifth CES. Um, I went once as a congressional staffer, um, and then I have been the past three years as a lobbyist for the Consumer Technology Association. Um, and so I'm really excited this year that I just get to go and uh, absorb everything. But CES is a great um has a lot of really substantive panels on law and policy issues. Um, Chairman Pai was supposed to be there, but apparently it's not going. Um, but there'll still be uh, five or six members of Congress who are speaking on panels. Um, and then the best reason to go to CES is to check out all of the new cool technology. Um, and as with as a startup advocate, I'm really excited because CES has a whole, I think they have 1,800 startups who are part of their Eureka Park exhibit. And so they have a whole area um, within the Venetian Hotel where uh, 1,800 startups are exhibiting and showing off their new cool technology. Um, and it's just got a like great uh, vibe and energy and, you know, all of the the coolest wearables and kitchen gadgets. And last year, my favorite was a teddy bear that um, you have one of the teddy bears and your child has a teddy bear and you can hug the bear and the bear will hug your child or your friend Aww. or whoever from like, uh, you know, all across Every the connected game. toy scares That's the hell out adorable. of me. All of that stuff <laughs> creeps me out. I'm not sure if it's like, um, you know, a horror, literal horror movie chalky situation <laughs> or just like the privacy advocate in me just internally screaming. But all of that scares me. <laughs> uh, they probably have really awesome souvenirs, though. So bring us back some cool swag, Rachel. <laughs> yes, they do. Um, I told Evan, our executive director, who's going with me, that we have to go on Tuesday when it opens up because we want to get there before they run out of swag. Right. So we are going to be spending all of Tuesday wandering around Eureka Park and finding new startups to feature and to um, get connected with our members of Congress and advocating on policy issues. So I'm really excited this year. Um, and I'm sure I'm going to learn a lot with the government track, too. And then it's just, you know, there's no place like CES. It's the largest trade show in the world. Um and it brings in 250,000 people. And it's just a really interesting um, and exciting event. So if you haven't gone, I would highly recommend it. All right. Well, I'll try to make it in, in the schedule next year. But today I want to thank you again, Rachel, for joining us. Uh, before I hand it over to Penala to close the show out, we got to mention the job board of the week. This week on the Foundry job board, it looks like Verizon is hiring a staff council in D.C. Public Citizen is looking for a campaign director. 
And if DC is just too darn cold for you right now, we've got listings everywhere from Austria to Arizona as well. So check out these awesome opportunities and more at the Internet Law and Policy Foundry job board or post your own listing if you'd like at ilpfoundry.us slash jobs. If you want to hit us up or follow us on Twitter, I'm at Woman of Fuego. You can catch me at Emery Roan. And I'm at Rachel Wolbers. Rachel, we want to thank you again for joining us today on Tech Policy Grind. We've really appreciated your insights on startups and the challenges they face today. I think we can all agree that startups have really changed the way that we walk through the world. And for the most part, we're better for it. So <laughs> it's really great to see a continued advocacy for startups. In the meantime, if you enjoyed the show, rate, review on iTunes, spread the word and share with your friends. Until next time. Bye.